This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier, Director of Global Analyst Relations at Capgemini. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. Today, we'll be talking about taking climate action. How can we make meaningful and positive environmental change? And how can we effectively communicate those practices to others? This podcast is based on Capgemini Research Institute's Conversations for Tomorrow latest quarterly review, Climate Tech for a Sustainable Planet. Today, I'm joined by Ariel. My name is Ariel Kuyumjan. I'm a sophomore in high school, and I'm the host of the Changing Planet Justice podcast, which explores how climate change disproportionately affects marginalized communities all around the globe. And Tyler. Hi, my name is Tyler Williams. I'm the deputy head for Capgemini's sustainability practice in the Americas. Excellent. So let's get right into the conversation. So climate action is one of the most important issues right now. And one of the biggest challenges around it is communication and how we communicate the urgency for action. Ariel, how do you use your platform to communicate to young people and the population at large about climate action? And what do you think we could be doing better? Yeah. So with my podcast, my main goal is to kind of amplify the voices of those who are not often heard on the front lines of the fight against climate change. And, you know, those voices are often the ones who bear the brunt of the consequences of our changing planet. So they should really be at the forefront of the way that we address climate change mitigation. So by mixing, you know, science, storytelling, and firsthand accounts, I try to make my podcast accessible to people of all backgrounds, regardless of age or education, or even level of belief in climate change itself. I'm not trying to exclude climate skeptics from the conversation because I think they're very important to uh, moving forward with climate change mitigation. Additionally, I think the fact that I'm such a young podcast producer might be encouraging to my listeners. Um, It may address some of the apathy amongst youth in the climate movement who kind of feel that other kids don't care enough about climate change so so their own efforts are useless. And I think it also pushes adult listeners to take action um, when they can actually hear, you know, my generation's fears from a spokesperson who is from Gen Z. In terms of uh, what we could be doing better, I think that we really need to bridge the generational divide in climate conversation. Um, You know, when youth stage massive protests like Greta Thunberg's school strikes for climate, obviously that is so impressive and admirable that that happened and it gives me hope and it certainly turns a lot of heads in the adult world as well. Um, But I think that the kids participating in those types of strikes or massive initiatives are actually getting more fired up than the adults themselves because while those strikes were impressive, they didn't result in policy change. So um, when youth only communicate with one another about climate change, they're really preaching to the choir. But I think that we have to get the adults on the same page as well in order to catalyze lasting change. That's fantastic. Uh, It sounds like you're doing, um, you're being very inclusive in the way that you're doing your podcast to include all of the different voices out there and to understand, you know, and make it accessible for Everyone, including people who don't necessarily believe in climate change, which is admirable. And as a Gen Z person yourself, you have that level of authenticity that some of um, the younger listeners might not 
see as often. So it's really, it's really cool that you're doing that. You know, you, you brought up about how sometimes when, when young people have these kind of protests and the strikes, it doesn't necessarily end in action. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you feel there that could make it more successful? You know, I think that these strikes are a great uh, means of kind of communicating our general goal for the public. You know, when we sit out of school, what Greta was literally saying there was, why should I go to school if I don't have a future? I'm not going to participate in a fruitless education when the adults in charge aren't doing anything to make sure that my future comes to fruition. So I think the metaphor behind the strikes is a really important one. But, you know, I actually want to see changes at the COP conferences. You know, um, I want to see adults giving kids a seat at the table uh, when they're having these discussions at COP 27 or, you know, even I want to see the IPCC maybe incorporating more youth into its um you know, even its board of directors or the people that they collaborate with to create policy change. And I want to see more large companies do what Capgemini is doing um, with things like Conversations for Tomorrow, giving youth a podium to speak at and kind of weaving youth into their very business model and perspective in the way that they're going to go about creating changes at the industry level. Tyler, what are your thoughts here? We haven't heard yet from you. How do you feel about this? Yeah, well, well first of all, thank you, Ariel. It's, it's so impressive to see what you're doing at, at a relatively young age. Um, and I would say, you know, stay optimistic on the impact that you and your peers are having. So I think, you know, Ariel, thank you for acknowledging what Capgemini is doing by having these types of conversations. You know, we have set pretty aggressive goals for our own footprint and our own business for a, a number of years now. Uh, it's relatively easy, even with our global scale, which is more than 350,000 employees across 50 countries, you know, we're a professional services company. And so, you know, really where we're leaning in is to try to help our clients that are in, you know, harder to decarbonize business models to really help them accelerate their journey. And so, um, Ariel, I mean, you talked a lot about policy and, you know, the, those bodies, whether it's COP or the IPCC, you know, extending, uh, invitations or, or kind of participation to younger generations. And I think that's a great suggestion. I think from a policy perspective, particularly in the United States and Europe, you know, we've seen more done and more action probably in the last 18 to 24 months than we have in, in history, right? And so it doesn't mean that we're there yet. That policy is just starting to flow. And, and we kind of characterize that as the, the carrot and the stick, right? So there's depending on how you look at it, a trillion to $2 trillion that's going to flow from the federal government into the economy, largely focused at clean energy, sustainability, you know, building efficiency in, in a number of those topics. The SEC, more on the stick side, has come out with their climate disclosure policies, right? And so that's currently under review and should be released pretty quickly in terms of the final policy. So you're starting to see actions at the federal level, even in the United States, it's going to take years before that comes to fruition. And what we want to see is really corporate leadership start to lean in like Capgemini has, you know, not to wait for a regulatory mandate to take action, right? To start to incorporate circular economy, clean energy, you know, really sustainability as a business into their, their design, right? And so 
that's really where we're focused because I think our point of view is that it's going to come in, into private enterprise and corporate leadership to really move the needle here. So I'm so encouraged by what you're doing and, it, you know, we can come back to how ways we can bridge the gap maybe in a few minutes. Yeah, I think that that would be a great plan. But first, Ariel, you had kind of mentioned that you try to focus on some of these underrepresented areas. What are some of the key underrepresented areas that you see when we discuss sustainability and climate action? I'm mainly referring to the groups that are disproportionately impacted by climate change. And so climate justice is sort of an intersectional fight. And so I'm talking about women, I'm talking about youth, I'm talking about people of color, I'm talking about people who live in rural areas versus cities. Um, there's a lot of different perspectives through which you can look at it. And I think a lot of times, from what I've seen, climate science is presented by, you know, the white, male, highly educated, wealthy person. And I want to see you know, more firsthand perspectives, more personal stories coming from the people who are actually um, experiencing the greatest impact. And then in terms of what areas of climate communications are being underrepresented, I would say food security. Food security is inextricably linked to climate change, but people often see food security as solely an issue of nutrition or solely an issue of uh, socioeconomics, but they overlook the fact that climate change exacerbates both and it is a key driver of food insecurity. So I would like to see a lot of those conversations about how we can address people's access to food and nutrition in the same conversations as we're having about climate change and how it disproportionately impacts certain communities. I think that that is absolutely fair. You know, Tyler, what do you see there? I mean, a lot of the corporate world tends to focus on carbon. How do you feel about these underrepresented areas? Yeah, I think food security is a, is a good is a good point, right? And sustainable agriculture. So, I mean, we we have clients that are agricultural in nature, right? That would be you know all the way from farm to at least a grocery store distribution, right? And all the way to table, and they are recognizing that they're supply chains are, are going to be disrupted. And so they have business impacts to be able to serve their customers, right? But we're also starting to see hotel chains, restaurant chains start to understand the food waste kind of on the back end, right? Or spoilage or refrigeration issues, uh, grocery clients that are extremely focused on analytics and understanding how they can sustain some of the, the progress that they've made over the years and sourcing healthy food for their customers, all that is for waste if it gets thrown out or, or gets, you know, goes to the landfill, right? So I, I think in, in many of these issues, there's a, there's something around balance, right? So I was with a client that is a maker of, of several different product lines, but one of them is baby formula, right? And so, you know, they're under a lot of pressure in their supply chain department to reduce packaging, right? So to get plastic out of you know, some of the packaging design, but they've got more than two decades of innovation to design that packaging so that it preserves the baby formula so that it can go on long haul supply chains without refrigeration to the developing world, right? And so there's the balance there of you can't take so much of that plastic and packaging design out because you're going to degrade the sustainability of the end product, right? And so that balance becomes an issue and things like 
agricultural and food and nutritional security that Ariel mentioned, but also in the energy markets as well, right? And so you know, there is a, a balance between clean energy and energy affordability or access to energy as an example, right? And so um, it, it's about advancing the technologies that are cost effective today and positioning them to, to make the most impact, right? Well, that, I mean, that seems like it's very complex, which I would expect for, you know, the environment, but, you know, social media at times tends to be quite, you know, brief. I mean, you only have so many characters or so much of a spot to put things on. So how do you see, you know, social media playing into climate action and how do you feel about social media in general, Ariel? In my opinion, you know, social media is kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it has the capacity to mobilize millions of youth to kind of rally around a unified message, that being, you know, we need to fight climate change now. Um, And it also makes scientific information about climate change accessible to a much broader audience. You know, almost everybody has a phone. Almost everybody uh, has TikTok. I don't. I probably should, but many people do. And part of the reason that TikTok and Instagram um, are so appealing to young people is because these apps compact tremendous amounts of data and information into the span of a few seconds. And, you know, when information about climate change and how to stop it is presented in these bite-sized, easily digestible Instagram posts or TikTok videos, more youth are likely to internalize that message. And you know, all it takes is one clever post to make climate change go viral. On the other hand, I think social media can be so dangerous because in such short posts, um, information is often oversimplified. You know, the nuances of climate change mitigation and climate justice are overlooked when you only have, you know, a few seconds to before people lose attention. And you really can't get into all the facets of these issues that we need to, you know, that we need to address. And when a single person has influence over millions of youth, you know, a single TikTok influencer with hundreds of thousands or millions of followers, it's so easy to disseminate this misinformation. Um, But I, in general, I think it's an important tool to get us moving forward because I think the facts of climate change can be phrased in a few seconds. You know, those hardcore, raw, difficult to hear facts have the most impact when they're um, encapsulated in uh, such a short period of time. From a social media perspective, Tyler, how do you feel about social media and how corporations are using it today? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the points that Ariel highlighted are the same in the corporate environment, right? So it's all about getting that headline and then which headline do you trust, right? And so I think it's it's so important for us to present factual, objective points of view, like this podcast, an example. Um, we're not on here to try to sell Gemini services or brag about how great we are, right? It's to really discuss issues, to discuss facts and then, and then opinions around those facts, right? And so I would encourage folks of all demographics, whether they're Gen Z or in the corporate environment, to really start to cultivate, you know, sources of truth that are are very reliable and objective. Right. And so they're not politicized or polarized in their viewpoints. So it's very important to to kind of know where you can go for the truth. And, And truth is really, really important on this issue. 
I think so too, but it's also important not to just talk about the issues and take action. Ariel, do you see social media as a way that helps um, youth to take action as well? I do think that social media's capacity to connect so many people in such a brief period of time really speeds up a lot of the climate mitigation process. So, so much time that would be spent organizing and rallying um, can be done so quickly just with a simple hashtag or post. So I think it is important in that regard, but I do wish that youth would be just a little bit more careful with the information that they are um, spreading about climate change and making sure that they're getting their news from reliable sources and not oversimplifying or catastrophizing or fear-mongering. Maybe just to build on what you're saying, you know, it's the fear-mongering or the the complaining aspect of social media, right, to pile on. And, you know, I, I like to see folks like Ariel that are trying to present solutions or trying to highlight an issue and then, and then have a dialogue about it versus just, you know, the tendency around social media is it snowballs, right? And it's just a lot of complaining, right? Versus, you know, what are we actually going to do? Right. What conversations should we be having? Right. Who should be included? Who should be, you know, who's marginalized? Right. And so that's, you know, those that use social media responsibly typically are, are looking for solutions, not just going to complain. I feel that, you know, sometimes social media um, leaves out a large part of our world's population that doesn't have access to social media. So, you know, this is a prevalent issue in developed countries like the United States, but Recently, I visited Morocco with my family and I witnessed firsthand the impacts of climate change on the indigenous people and the nomadic tribes of Morocco. And those people almost certainly did not have access to social media. And so I think we need to also keep in mind basic needs like food and water. And, you know, while disseminating misinformation is dangerous and we've seen how drastic the effects of spreading propaganda and fake news on social media can be in the past, I think we also need to keep in mind people who don't have access to any information about climate change and how can we loop them into the conversation as well, um, even if, you know, TikTok is the last thing on their mind. But let's bring it back to some of those underrepresented issues that you spoke about earlier, Ariel. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the areas you'd like to cover on the show? Yeah, I think one thing I definitely like to address is bridging that generational divide. Um, and that's part of the reason I'm here today. You know, I'm the youngest person on this call, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this conversation. You know, even though I'm only 16, I often feel that I'm shouting into the wind, so to speak, when I talk about climate change. But I feel like now that I have a chance to be heard through part of a large organization like Capgemini uh, really gives me the opportunity to make change. I'm not just speaking to people my age who are who already agree with me that climate change is a big issue. I get to speak to um, adults like you. But um, another thing I would like to address is, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, economic incentives. And I think that the economy can be a great strategy for influencing the behavior of adults, but from a youth perspective and as someone who is not implicated whatsoever in the economy, I don't work, I don't pay taxes, I don't vote, I would like to kind of see adults addressing climate change from beyond an economic standpoint, but just for its own moral purpose, like for the purpose of saving the earth and preserving 
the future of my generation. So I'd kind of like to move beyond the economy and, you know, financial incentives and to see adults doing it for the earth itself. How do you feel about that, Tyler? Yeah. So Ariel, I mean, I would just pick up on a couple of things that you said. So the the fact that it, or the, the statement about being powerless in the economy, it, your demographic, what I would, I would challenge there is I think our stats are Gen Z is something like 27% of the U.S. population. So I'm just going to kind of focus U.S. here because I have that data. So you have influence in the, in the purchasing power that you, you have on the brands that you buy, the brands that you ask your parents or your, whomever supports you to buy, right? And I think even your parents will begin to listen. And I'm not talking about you specifically, but your generation, you will have influence over the purchasing decisions in their life, right? I, I think of myself of just, I have young daughters, seven and four. I got a new vehicle maybe 18 months ago and, and they wanted something with a bigger back seat, right? Because they're in car seats and boosters, right? And so that's all I heard from them for probably 90 days. And ultimately I went and got a new vehicle because they got tired of it, right? And so that wasn't a sustainability decision, but the same two daughters last week were watching some programming, I think it was on Disney, um, and it, all of a sudden it's a Disney character talking about clean energy, right? And then my seven-year-old is asking me what clean energy is, right? And so, you know, those types of dialogues that Gen Z can have with their parents, even at a very young age, I do think will influence. And I think our clients, particularly in the consumer products and retail sector, are really focused on how to attract Gen Z, how to, how to you know, market on social media, and sustainability is going to be a key component of that programming, uh, I think. And that's going to be, you know, if you think of now, if you go on Amazon and certain markets, again, U.S. bias here, you will start to see the carbon footprint of your delivery options, right? And so that's an example where Amazon is taking the lead because they believe that's the right thing to do. And ultimately, their consumers appreciate it. Right. And it's, it's a way that they can leverage their scale to drive change. So I think we're starting to see some some good examples of that. So don't feel so powerless because I think your generation does have influence beyond maybe what you think and feel each day. I was also just going to say, if you kind of zoom out um, and look at it from a massive perspective, kids are really what drives the economy. I mean, you know, people, you know, work to put food on the table and make sure that their kids have a better future, often better than their parents did. So people's drive to ensure that their children go forth into the kind of planet that they would have liked to grow up in is something that um, is a huge motivator for people. And it it does kind of spur on economic growth, I think. I do think there is a generational divide in the understanding of the urgency. Um, I think I think all adults, not all, but many adults do understand it abstractly and they, they do understand, you know, the implications of climate change. But what I've seen from the adults that I've spoken to, whether it be, you know, in my extended family or throughout my school administration, I see a lot of hesitancy to kind of invest in concrete sustainability measures, you know, solar panels, um, replacing HVAC systems with more efficient things, getting electric bus fleets. I see a lot of hesitancy to invest a lot of money in the short term. And I think that youth 
maybe because we are less involved in the economy, don't quite understand that um, morale because the studies show that um, in the long term, investing in sustainability does pay off not only to the planet, but also financially. Um, And I think, you know, on the scale of large countries like the U.S., the reason why we're not cutting off all subsidies for uh, fossil fuel and coal and oil companies is because in the short term, yeah, it might hurt us economically, but I wish that older generations would see that that short-term loss is so worth it in the long term because, you know, if we don't, then what we're going to owe is the future of our planet and then there will be no economy. Such a such a powerful statement. And I mean, back to some of your earlier comments, Ariel, about uh, making this issue more purpose-driven, less economic-driven. I, I think like it or not, economics or how society has been built through millennia, right? And so when you can tie the issue to to how the, this would work economically, um, if you use your solar panels on your school example, right? So, you know, a school board may have a, a challenge raising that type of capital in the near term without access to funding that they may not even understand in certain markets, Right. And so how can you as an activist or your generation connect the dots a bit further to say, well, actually there's subsidies available or actually there's commercial models that you don't have to pay for that upfront installation. You can buy energy as a service on a 20 year contract, as an example. Right. And school board administration, have you thought about these approaches and contacting these people? Right. So it requires what you're already doing as an activist to take it to the next level. But but ultimately, when you paint an economic picture, folks start to see that actually this does make sense longer term, right? And, and we can overcome traditional lobbyists or, or positions and policy of subsidizing fossil fuels or, you know, non-sustainable business models. So I love the enthusiasm and, and being purpose-driven. I mean, I personally transitioned to Capgemini out of the oil and gas industry because I was at a point in my life that I had young kids. I started to take this issue seriously. And I looked them in the eye and was like, I need to be on, you know, a force for good. But I understand that space that I came from and how hard it is to meet the world's energy demands with new technology with a flip of the switch, right? And so all those technologies and the way you procure energy and on a global scale, you know, requires a lot of investment. It requires a lot of economic understanding and it requires a lot of capital. Um, and so, it, you know, connecting the purpose driven areas to how you can actually move the needle economically for your own business, your own family, your own clients, or if you're in professional services like I am, you know, that's really how we move the needle. Right. And so it, it is about being purpose driven, but the economics are, are going to continue to be important, I think. I think that makes sense. But, you know, it seems that we do have a gap between these younger and older generations when it comes to sustainability. Ariel, how do you think we should close the gap? I kind of touched on this before, but really um, involving youth in at the highest levels of climate policy, which sounds like kind of a radical thing to say. And, you know, large corporations may not want to invite youth um, into their meetings or onto their board of directors. But I really think that's the key to it because while we may not know the intricacies of economic policy or 
tax policy. Uh, we do know our fair share about climate change, and we feel very strongly about how it will influence our future. And I think, you know, some of the things um, that Mr. Williams just pointed out to me about how, for example, a school board could be encouraged to invest in solar panels with, you know, long-term plans, or, you know, there might be tax incentives to do so, you know, that's something I didn't know. And so that's a perfect example of where, you know, an adult and a youth can kind of join in a conversation and make each other aware of of gaps in knowledge. And so I think what we need kids for is to be the ones who are really pushing, saying faster, faster, things are not happening fast enough. We need change and we need it now. And naturally, for so many different reasons, the adults may be a little bit more hesitant to put forth immediately the funds necessary. But I think that interplay between youth and adults is really where the change happens. I think that that's very interesting. I mean, Tyler, from your perspective, you know, we talked about the closing the gap, but obviously kids see things different than companies see with it. I know that you kind of talked a little bit about it, but what are some of the barriers you're seeing when it comes to clients trying to address sustainability issues with their companies in order to affect climate action? Yeah. So, I mean, it, I would say most, um, most large companies or even medium-sized firms have had some type of sustainability plan for a few years now, at least, right? Where we see that challenge is typically there's a disconnect between the sustainability officer and the rest of the company, right? So uh, maybe some targets have been set, uh, maybe even a little bit of budget has been allocated, but typically the budget is gonna lie in the operations and finance groups that are really are, are the heritage business, right? And so I think where companies are starting to make traction, use of maybe a Walmart or an Amazon as an example that are pretty progressive in these areas is to start to incorporate the business case for sustainability, right? So not only is this the right thing to do for the planet, but this actually helps me be more profitable. It helps me, you know, prevent waste or, you know, increase efficiency for delivery to my customers by making sustainable decisions upfront, sustainable design, incorporating those principles. And so I think where we can start to incorporate the business case for sustainability, that this is right, not only for the planet, but for our shareholders, that's really where we can see, you know, gain most momentum. And so I think clients are, are a little bit beyond setting the targets. It's about how to get to the targets and how to, to get there as fast as possible. Interesting. I think that that's a very good point. Coming back to the generational gap, Technology can sometimes have different effects on different generations. Ariel, what role do you see technology playing in climate action? I think that technology is an important piece, but not the most important piece, because the studies show that most of what we can do to mitigate climate change is not, you know, inventing new technologies to counteract all of the carbon that we emit into the air. You know, the technology for that exists. It's called trees. It's carbon sequestration or carbon sinks in the ocean. But I think it's still an important piece, but most of what we need to do involves doing less of what we're doing, less of the overconsumption, paying back the earth. You know, there's 
this professor, Sir Partha Dasgupta, presented this 600-page argument about how we should financially reimburse the Earth for the cost of every um, single ecosystem asset that we're using. So paying for things like carbon, that's like a carbon tax, or paying for the fertilizers that we dump into the um, waterways. So I think with things like that, it's not so much about technology, it's more about our behaviors and our actions, and those could always be changed even without um, the addition of complex new technologies. In terms of generational divide, it just calls to mind, um, as I mentioned, our trip to Morocco, I interviewed some locals in an indigenous community about their traditional irrigation system which turned out to be far more sustainable than the modernized irrigation system that many farmers in Morocco had adapted. And, you know, the elders in this community were like, we've been using this traditional system for centuries. Our great-great-grandparents passed it down all the way to us, and it works in a way that reduces um, excess consumption of water, whereas the new irrigation technology guzzles massive, massive quantities of water, which is scarce right now in Morocco due to droughts. So I think that was just an interesting example of how the older generations were really emphasizing the use of traditional or ancient technology um, in the fight against climate change and in the pursuit of sustainability rather than kind of adopting these um, newfangled modern methods. Just an interesting flipping the idea that technology is for young people on its head. I think that in many cases, whether it's leveraging something from the past, I I was with a client recently and their sustainability report had um, an ocean freighter. It was an agricultural company that was, was trialing climate tech and the startup that had this fancy wind sail kind of that would go on the freighter to increase efficiency, right? So you're like, wait a second, wind powered ships have been around for millennia, right? And so, you know, it's, it's a new way to, to come back to an old technology. So that's a great story from Ariel. Ariel, I want to do, do go back to something that you said um, in part of your last response of, of the demand reduction or the, um, you know, consuming less. And so I think that is something that most businesses or have been built on consumption, right? The more that you consume, the higher the profits or the higher the revenue for a a company, right? And so that is where Gen Z or the consumer actually has the power to influence change. And so as you, you or your peers get older and you start to drive, right? Do you, do you actually need a vehicle, right? Do you, you know, can you rely on mass transit or can you live where you work or go to school, right? And, and then just kind of spending habits, right? You know, not only buying the next great piece of clothing or whatnot, but, you know, how sustainable is that clothing? What what kind of dyes were used? What kind of water intensive denim was, was required, right? And so it's understanding your individual footprint. And I think it's about using less. And that's something that I'm even reflecting on as as I guess I'm a millennial or somebody that's a generation or two ahead of you is, you know, how do I pivot my own behavior so that I raise my children to, to use less, right? Even in a developed society where they have means. So um, that is an area that, that youth and Gen Z will continue to have power for, for shaping that, that type of usage or consumption patterns that, that previous generations maybe were incentivized to, 
to, you know, it was all about status and having more, right? I think now Gen Z wants to be, be connected and be part of something, not necessarily have status and have more, right? And have, and they want purpose, not status. And so that is really a, a pivotal moment, I think, in time that your, your generation really has the power. So I did want to circle back to that. I think that that's a great thought, but you know, unfortunately, we've we've come to the end of our time, so we're almost out of time. So I'd like to ask you both if you could leave me with some final thoughts for our audience. Ariel, I'll start with you. I I wish that the audience would really just take to heart, trust the youth. It's not fear mongering. It's not unfounded. This fear, the people who say that climate change is a constant source of panic for them, that's not an exaggeration. For me, at least personally, it's something that weighs on me every day. There doesn't go a single day when I don't think about the future of this planet. And it does cause genuine anxiety and angst um, in my generation. And so I wish people would understand that. But I also wish that people would remember to include the communities that aren't as talked about, um, the indigenous people, the women, people of color, the communities that are bearing the brunt of climate change, but not being included or amplified in the conversation. And then lastly, I, if any youth are listening, I just want to say don't get apathy um, or apathetic. You know, conversations like this are happening with large corporations. This is a perfect example of a time when um, youth are being woven into the conversation and the youth perspective is being considered. So this conversation itself gives me tremendous hope. And I, I think that passivity is the worst crime. So even if you feel like you can't do very much and you don't have a job and you wish you could vote, you know, you can at least think about, are you going to purchase fast fashion? Are you going to get a plastic water bottle? What are you going to do in your own sphere, small or large as it may be, to make a difference in the planet? Excellent. That That's very profound. Tyler, any last words? All right. Thanks, Liz. In terms of last thoughts, I mean, just let me start by responding to what Ariel just said about kind of anxiety or the fear that she and, and many in her generation face. And I think that, you know, that's that's reasonable and it's real. These are uh, you know, it's a potentially existential challenge for, for the global society. And so it's a serious issue and it's one that requires a lot of thought. But that being said, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic and that's how I choose to approach it. I think, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, in the last 18 to 24 months, there's been more action in this space than there ever has been. Global leaders, whether that's from a government perspective in key markets like the US, the EU, China, et cetera, are not only talking about this issue, they are putting significant policies in place that will help shape the future of the economy and how private enterprises respond to that. And in terms of how we're positioning as Cap Gemini, obviously we take it serious for our own business, but we're helping our clients. And every client that I talk to is extremely focused on this, not just how they manage reporting and PR, et cetera, but actually how they make meaningful impact through their business uh, to meet society's needs around climate change. And so I'm extremely encouraged by where we are over the last 18 to 24 months and certainly the years ahead. And the only kind of closing thought I'd share with Ariel and, and anybody that listens that's in the Gen Z kind of demographic is, you know, be bold in this space, lean into it, educate yourself, be an activist like Ariel, and, and don't be afraid to have conversations 
with more senior leaders or people in positions of authority in whatever circle that you run in. So I'll just encourage you to, to channel that energy, to channel that focus and to be bold and help shape this change together. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to add one more thing, which is very quickly, I want to say that I wish youth would not be afraid to speak to adults. You know, don't be afraid to engage in those conversations. Don't be afraid to participate in debates with, you know, elders who disagree with you or to those people who say, well, I'll be dead anyway, so it doesn't matter. And also keep in mind that there are people out there um, like, you know, Mr. Williams and the people at Capgemini, adults who are working hard to mitigate climate change. So, you know, it's not this unsolvable crisis. Progress is being made. And um, I think that's where a lot of the apathy and kind of dread stems from is this idea that adults aren't doing anything and that there's no momentum. And, you know, that's simply not true. So, you know, don't be afraid to speak up and, you know, talk to your school principal or send an email to the head of your youth group or community center and, you know, really participate in those conversations across generations, not just talking about it with um, your own peers, because that doesn't affect as much change as cooperating with people of older generations does. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ariel. Thank you to Ariel and Tyler for sharing your insights with us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also download the Capgemini Research Institute's latest quarterly review, Climate Tech for a Sustainable Planet, from the link in this episode description.